I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My guest today is my colleague Deborah Friedel, a contributing editor at the LRB, who has a piece in the current issue on J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI for nearly 50 years, from before it was the FBI until his death in 1972. The piece is a review of G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Making of the American Century by Beverly Gage. Hello, Deborah, and thank you very much for joining me again. Hello, Tom. So Hoover is famous for well, for many things, but also including for knowing everyone's secrets and for having a few secrets of his own. Um, but one of, one of the most striking revelations in your piece, for me anyway, was that his first job was as a librarian, cataloguing books at the Library of Congress, which is a method or a methodology that he brought with him to the FBI. So was J. Edgar Hoover always a librarian at heart? I think he was. So this is pretty much Hoover's first job. He's a teenager. He's going to night school at George Washington for law, and they have a special program for federal employees. It's accelerated. And in order to qualify, Hoover gets a job at the Library of Congress. And he's in the sort of books processing department. Um, at that time, apparently the library you know, acquired more than 100,000 new books a year in multiple languages for many countries. And Supposedly, Hoover was just a prodigy. He could classify and sort and retrieve material faster than any other librarian. And you can see he takes this when he becomes director of the FBI. I mean, one of the things he's he's known for when he goes to work for the Bureau and which helps his rise is that he's able to classify, he, he's able to create a system for classifying fingerprints, which before computers just seems so incredible to me. It's, it's almost hard to get my mind around it. But to figure out a, a way, yeah, so that you know, if you had a suspect's fingerprints, you didn't have to go through thousands of cards. There was a way to, to have it systemized. And he took that job at the Library of Congress partly because he lived in Washington already. And he, I mean, he, spent, he was a creature of Washington, D.C. for his whole life, wasn't he? He was, he was born there, lived there, died there. His family were from there. How much did that affect who he was. Yeah, so Hoover's part of a long chain of Hoovers who live in Washington, D.C., and who work for the federal government. His paternal grandfather was a messenger for the government. His father was a printer. He worked on uh, the Coastal Survey. It was mostly, I think, working on maps of the United States and its imperial possessions, maps of Guam and Hawaii. And Hoover's younger brother went to work for the government. He inspected steamboats. And th there's a sense that Hoover always sort of knew or expected that he was going to work for the government. That's what everyone around him did. And that question of Washington, I mean, because you, 
have lived there yourself. I mean, you didn't grow up there, but you worked at the New Republics and you spent some years living in Washington. Is it is it different? Is that being there when it seems almost everyone in the city, I mean, obviously that's a massive exaggeration, but that the concentration of the federal government and of the bureaucracy and that, is it a different sort of city from other American cities? Yeah, so the federal government booms during Hoover's lifetime. I mean, you can see Hoover's growing in power at the same time as the federal government is growing in numbers and in power. But one thing that that seems very similar to me when I read about Hoover's Washington, you know, when I lived in D.C., I was, you know, you were very aware that there are people in Washington who've just come in with the latest administration. So when I was there, George W. Bush was president, there were a lot of Texans. You heard them on the metro. And then when Obama became president, fewer Texans and there were people from Chicago. And there was a sense that the town, I think, took its tone from whoever the executive was. So people would talk nostalgically about how much better the parties were under Clinton and under Bush. You know, people would wake up at 5 a.m. to exercise because that's what Bush did with Condoleezza Rice. But you also have this permanent bureaucracy that's unchanging, that's apolitical, serves at the power of the president. The administration goes between Republicans and Democrats, and you have a bureaucracy that's you know, unchanging. And I think Hoover saw himself very much in that latter category. He never voted. As a resident in Washington, of course, he wasn't represented in Congress, but it was also part of his identity. He claimed to be apolitical, even though anyone who knew him would have guessed very quickly that his heart was with the Republicans. But he he really, I think, made a point of at least pretending that he just was the government. And uh, I mean, in some ways, I mean, there is some truth to that, isn't there? I mean, how many presidents, he was at the FBI for 50 years, he saw six, however many presidents, presidents it was come and go. I mean, there is some truth to that sense of himself. But we're sort of but I'm possibly skipping ahead a bit here and you know, talking about him being director of the FBI. He, so so, but, yeah. he grows up in southeast Washington within minutes of the capital. Um, it's now, we, we would call it Eastern Market. And he attends segregated schools. What What's interesting, and this is something that Beverly Gage points to very well, I think, in her biography, is how segregation was always changing, how in, in some, it wasn't static. There, there are periods when it gets worse before it gets better. But Hoover goes to a white high school where he's valedictorian. He goes to George Washington University when it's only for white students. He's part of a fraternity that dedicates itself to the old South that we would probably now call white supremacist. That, that's very much part, part of his makeup. And did that sense of belonging to the Kappa Alphas persist long after he left university? Yeah. I mean, the Kappa Alphas, I mean, they're... They're also critical, I think, to Hoover's rise. I mean, when I was drafting the piece, I had a sentence in about, I think, Hoover being like the L. Woods of the FBI. I mean, I, I really did keep thinking about Legally Blonde. Um, this, of course, was, was all cut by the time I submitted the piece to my editors. But he's very good at developing contacts. I mean, he, you know, among Kappa Alphas in Congress, he leans on them for support he hires and promotes Kappa Alphas you know, within the Bureau um, for Hoover. You know, it's a seal of good housekeeping if you're a member of this fraternity. And even if you didn't go to the fraternity and you were a member of the FBI, you sort of needed to act like one 
that that, that was the model for Hoover. And that's not only from George Washington, but Kappa Alpha's from universities across America. That for yeah, I mean, I think Cap- they had, yeah, they limited themselves to only being in places in southern soil. You're not going to find many Kappa Alphas uh, in the Northeast. So Hoover's best contacts t- tend to be southern congressmen. So he's in this. He's in this fraternity. Is he still working at the Library of Congress while he's at George Washington University, or is he? Once he's got his place at university, does he quit the library? Uh, no, he, in order to, to stay in this accelerated program, I think he, he keeps working at the library. He, he's good at multitasking. So he was 22 when the United States entered the First World War in 1917. What was his contribution to the war effort? Yeah, so his mythologizers claim that Hoover had you know, desperately wanted to fight in the war and did everything he could to see glorious combat and that he was thwarted by the attorney general who insisted that Hoover was so important that he had to stay uh, stateside. Almost certainly what actually happened is that Hoover used contacts, family contacts, Kappa Alpha contacts, to get a job at the Justice Department that came with a draft exemption. And his first job, we think, probably had to do with interrogating German nationals. He was trying to determine who is a security risk when America entered the war. Quickly, though, he moves to this new division, which is known as the Radical Division. He's working directly under the attorney general, who's this really interesting figure, A. Mitchell Palmer. I learned about him uh, recently from Adam Hochschild's book, uh, American Midnight, The Great War, a Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis, which I heartily recommend. Palmer's, he, he was a Quaker. He was known as the fighting Quaker because he becomes less pacifist as he goes along. His house is bombed and he survives and his family survives, but he's, he's really shaken. He blames, with, with good reason, he's, he was probably right. He, he thinks it was the work of foreign anarchists. And he, you know, I think the shrinks would say he overgeneralizes. He thinks the anarchists are coming for everybody. You know, this is right after the Russian Revolution. He's convinced, and Hoover's convinced, that there's a chance there's going to be a Bolshevik uprising in the United States. And what Palmer and Hoover do is they almost single-handedly spearhead this campaign to try to deport anyone in America they can who they think is a radical. They're persuaded that to be an anarchist or a communist or even just vaguely on the left, I mean, they really don't make subtle distinctions, but they, they think to be on the left means that you're a fanatic, you're going to have an up, you're going to try to have an uprising, you're dangerous. And it's this time in America when so many people thought of themselves as Americans, but they weren't actually citizens. They got into Ellis Island, or in the case of my family, came in through Canada, and they didn't bother going through the paperwork. You know, they knew any children they had who were born in the United States would be citizens. They they didn't really think about it until Palmer just starts deporting people right and left. And they target union halls. They particularly want to target the international workers of the world, the Wobblies. The labor unions had opposed the First World War. And that's sort of all they need. They particularly want to go after Russian nationals, German nationals, 
They like going after Jews. And a lot of people arrested. A lot of people are sent back to Russia on these sort of prison ships that go to Finland. And then America makes a deal with the Finns that they're then escorted to Russia. And it's and Adam Hochschild's right. It's it's this forgotten period, and Hoover is really running it. I mean, these raids are called the Palmer raids, but Hochschild argues they really could have been called the Hoover raids. Palmer's politically ambitious. He thinks he's going to run for president, and he's thwarted. He he overplays his hand. He claims that he has good information that there's about to be a Bolshevik uprising in America, May Day, 1920. There are going to be mass assassinations. It's all going to kick off. Law enforcement, you know, is on every street corner. And of course, nothing happens. And the country really turns on him at, at that point. And Hoover, fortunately for his career, is lucky that he's been letting his boss take the credit, thinking that he's being a, a good subordinate. And, and that's what saves Hoover's career, because if he'd been, if people had known just how closely implicated he'd been in all those raids, he would not have been as popular, I think, as, as he was. Yeah, amazing. And there's a counterfactual history to be written in which, you know, Palmer does become president, and that would be, I don't know, a very different America. Or perhaps not. Um, but anyway, but Palmer didn't become president, probably just as well, and instead Warren Harding did. And you mentioned earlier about the way that the, the change of administrations in, in Washington changes things. So with that, when Warren Harding became president. How did that affect Hoover's career? Hoover is so good at adapting to new presidents, to new leaders. So he turns on a dime. Harding becomes president after a campaign saying, I think he uses the word normalcy. He's not going to be so upset about the Bolsheviks. Things are just going to be back to normal. It's after the war. It's going to be the America you know. Everything's going to be calm. Hoover shuts up about anarchists and radicals. And this is when he does the quiet work of creating a database for fingerprints. And talent's sort of thin on the ground. Because of the war, there is a man shortage. If you're a white man with a law degree, you can rise fast. And Hoover rises incredibly quickly. There are um, all these scandals in the Harding administration. Um, Teapot Dome is the big one, which uh, look up the Wikipedia entry if you don't know it, if you haven't had the pleasure. And Can you describe it quickly? Not really. <laughs> okay. Just, <laughs> right. it, 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 it's basically, it's the biggest political sc- American political scandal before Watergate. A lot of people are implicated. There's a clearing of house in the government. And Hoover's one of the men left standing. And incredibly, I mean, he becomes director of the FBI before he's 30. And he dies in post. He never retires. So now we just have decades in which Hoover is important all the time. I have so much sympathy for his biographers because he's there's just never a moment in which whatever the most important thing happening in America, Hoover's right there. My next piece for the LRB is, is it going to be about someone I already know who, who dies, I think, in her 20s? And, and I'm so relieved. <laughs> There's a lot of material, and there have been a lot of biographies. How many, roughly? Uh, quite a few. Hoover's been very well served by biographers. That said, you know, we, we have learned more about him in the last few decades. So Beverly Gage's biography, I think, is the first major bi- biography of Hoover to be written after release of these transcripts called Venona in the 1990s, 
there were these you know secret intercepts that very few people in the U.S. knew about. Hoover was one. The president wasn't one. But it meant that Hoover was seeing intelligence about Soviet spies in the United States. He knew that Julius Rosenberg really was a spy, that there really were people in America passing classified information to the Soviets, which made him very paranoid. I mean, have people, junior people at the FBI, described what it was like to work under him? Uh, apparently, it was absolutely miserable. I mean, Hoover was a dictator, no detail too small, and all about appearances. So to give one example, Hoover had a rule that window shades all had to be at the same level because he thought it didn't look neat if they weren't. But it, it didn't matter if the sun was right in your eyes. You couldn't move the window shade. And windows in winter had to be open because he thought otherwise, you know, you'd be sluggish. So many rules about appearances. Um, he really wants FBI agents to look like their counterparts in the movies, particularly in the 50s when FBI agents are, are heroes in the 40s and 30s. So, I mean, he has rules against hiring. I mean, this seems incredible to me, but he didn't want to hire short agents. He wouldn't hire agents with acne. And he wouldn't hire you if you were bald. According to Sullivan's memoir, if he hired you and you later lost your hair, you, you wouldn't be fired for that, but you would absolutely be moved to a position where you wouldn't be in the public eye. The other thing is he had in his office um, a map in which I think field agents were represented by pins sort of all over the United States, and he loved moving them around. He had this idea that if you stayed too long in one place, you would develop ties to a community when really your, your strongest ties needed to be needed to be to the FBI. Um, so, you know, after a couple of years, you know, you would move coasts, you would move to the middle of the country. It was a way of controlling people. If you fell out of favor with him, you would you would not be moved to a good post. So Carl McLaughlin as as Dale Cooper in Twin Peaks is sort of perfect casting for a from Jed Hoover's point of view. But he stays too long. He stays in Twin Peaks too long. And yeah, Hoover wouldn't allow that. You know, two years he'd he'd be out. I mean, another thing that I was surprised by in your piece, I mean, perhaps I should have known, but I didn't, is that how much of the power that Hoover came to have was given to him or he took when FDR, when Franklin Roosevelt was president? And somehow you, I don't know, you think of Roosevelt, you think of the New Deal, then you think of the, the Second World War, but you don't necessarily, or I don't necessarily think of him empowering the FBI. Yeah, so I think a few things are going on there. One, of course, you know, part of the, the idea behind the New Deal is that we're going to make the federal government more powerful. The federal government's going to do more. And so giving power to the FBI is part of that project. Uh, Roosevelt is looking, you know, at these crimes that are going unsolved in America. They're bank robberies. This is the Depression. So there's very we now see them as sort of glamorous, the sort of Midwestern crime spree in Bonnie and Clyde. But they're kidnappings, they're lynchings. And in Roosevelt's mind, part of giving Americans a better deal is that federal law enforcement is going to do what state and local law enforcement haven't done. The other thing about Roosevelt, this was something one of, I think, his aides said about him, was that he, he tried to do the right thing. He wasn't always so concerned about whether that right thing was constitutional. So... In the lead up to the Second World War, Roosevelt's worried with good reason about fascism in America. He's worried about a German-American group that's parading 
with swastikas. He wants to know who's sort of make turning Americans against his ideas of Lend-Lease. He wants to know which of his political rivals might be a problem when it, because Roosevelt is trying to drag this country into a war that public opinion is really against. So he really empowers Hoover, who he sees as you know working for him. Hoover takes very little interest in American fascists, but he takes a lot of interest in American communists. And his argument, I think, to Roosevelt is, look, like strikes are a problem. There were strikes of dock workers in San Francisco and Seattle. And if you're getting ready to go to war, having big parts of your defense industry shut down because of you know, labor actions is an issue. But nevertheless, I, I think you're right. I mean, it's, it is bracing reading about you know, liberal presidents. Lyndon Johnson would be the other who, who do the most to empower Hoover. But even with all these new powers that Roosevelt had given the FBI, they were still taken by surprise by the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Could they have seen that coming? This is a very big question about Hoover. Arguably, the FBI really should have anticipated the attack on Pearl Harbor. I mean, I th Hoover had a sense that America was going to go to war with Japan. But in retrospect, there were a lot of signals that Pearl Harbor was going to be the target. And Hoover missed them. And I think he's haunted by it. In years to come, he's so conscientious about keeping the president informed about movements of Soviet diplomats because he sees movements as possibly pointing to a war between the United States and the Soviet Union. And I think that's because people said he should have been paying attention to where Japanese diplomats were in Hawaii, for example. But Hoover's, he's definitely, he's getting ready for this war. And what he does is he prepares a list of people to be arrested the moment the U.S. and Japan declare war. And his list is under 1,000 people. It's mostly Japanese nationals or you know, people living in America of Japanese descent. But, but I mean, what followed, it was they didn't just arrest fewer than 1,000 people, did you? There was, there was mass internment of Japanese Americans. I'm getting to that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but I think probably the best thing you can say about Hoover is that he opposes the mass internment of the Japanese. He thinks it can be limited to under a thousand. But he, his reasoning, it's not because Hoover has any kind of moral qualm about arresting anyone who's Japanese in America. It's that he thinks it's not a good look. Hoover really cares about how people perceive the FBI. And he wants people to think the FBI is capable of subtle, targeted approaches. It doesn't need to do a dragnet. And he's glad, at least, that it's, it's the army involved in, in rounding up Japanese Americans, that it's not the FBI. And that's presumably something he'd learned from the Palmer raids, that the way that publicity can very quickly turn against you. I think that's absolutely right, yeah. So he sort of sat back and let the army round everyone up. But did the FBI take everyone's fingerprints? Oh, I'm not sure. But the the FBI's very does is you know so this these are the years before the CIA. The FBI is given control over espionage in the US and outside and it has no experience doing this kind of work. I mean it's it's almost funny when you read about FBI agents trying to be spies. I mean, you, you think almost anyone now who's like read a few John le Carre novels is just so ahead of, of where these guys were. And so what they do is they, they lean on British intelligence to teach them how do you run a double agent? How do you set up before an outpost? 
an, ex- an exchange. And it's sort of incredible. The Americans let British intelligence run operations in Washington, which is usually unthinkable. You, you don't let a foreign country knowingly run intel, but they, they let the British do it because they need them. So with the creation of the CIA, there was a division of powers or a, a division of spheres between the FBI and the CIA. The CIA conducted espionage abroad. The FBI was restricted to operations on, on US soil. Was Hoover happy about that? No, Hoover wants everything. He wants to do global espionage. And he feels thwarted when Truman doesn't give it to him. Truman doesn't like Hoover personally. He thinks the FBI is becoming too powerful, a secret police force. And I think Truman has the sense, you know, it takes him a little while to come up with what actually becomes the CIA. You know, in the beginning, the idea that maybe the military should run espionage or an organization that's under the State Department. But whatever it is, it's not going to be Hoover. And Hoover's furious when there's a sort of transition period when the FBI is supposed to be giving files from operations in Latin America to other officers who aren't in the FBI. Hoover has his agents burn their records rather than cooperate. Um, he sees, so a lot of the CIA agents are coming out of the wartime OSS, and Hoover sees them as lefties, which many of them were, and intellectuals, and they, they have a bit of flair, and they're not at all like the FBI, and Hoover doesn't trust them. So he had that, the rest of the world was taken away from him and given to the CIA. And is it, is it Truman who said of Hoover that you, or someone said to Truman, you want him in your tent pissing out, not outside your tent pissing in, is that? Oh, I think that's, that's Lyndon Johnson, I think. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, Hoover, his grudge is so that, um, you know, in the 1948 election, this is Truman versus Thomas Dewey, we know that Hoover did everything he, ca- he could to help Dewey gave Dewey every file, you know, had agents basically working as unofficial campaign officers for Dewey. Um, And it was a very close election, as we know from the famous photograph of Dewey defeats Truman. But in the end, you know, Hoover was thwarted. He was still stuck with Truman. And Truman was stuck with Hoover because Hoover was incredibly popular. Truman had promised that he was going to continue Roosevelt's policies, possibly firing Hoover at that point wouldn't have been a good look because he was so popular. And it also raises the question, which may be unanswerable, of how Hoover stayed in power for so long under such different administrations. Was there blackmail? Very possible, yes. And is, I mean, is that the sort of thing that will ever be known? Are there sealed records or anywhere that will at some point will be opened and we'll be able to know if what dirt Hoover had on, on Truman and whoever else, or are they, did it go to the grave with him? So, I mean, I think Beverly Gage's biography is terrific. I wasn't surprised when it won the Pulitzer Prize. I have an objection which is utterly unfair, which is that I'm frustrated that she didn't start writing it 50 years ago when she could have interviewed people who were alive. I think there's a lot we'll, we'll never know. We do have a sense, though, from other people's memoirs anecdotes of maybe how it worked. And they're, they're different theories. I mean, one is that, I mean, something we, we do know for sure is that when Truman became president, Hoover very quickly started giving him information on his staff, on his opponents. And one theory is 
in some ways that, you know, that implicates Truman. It would have been a scandal if people knew that Truman was having his FBI give him information that way. But it's also a way of signaling to Truman, you don't want to know everything I know. I mean, you can scare someone just by implication. You know, you, you start wondering, you know, what files do they have on me? There's a memoir, which I think is pretty incredible, called The Bureau by William Sullivan, who had worked under Hoover for 30 years. And he describes, you know, how the moment an FBI agent learned that a crime or anything remotely scandalous connected to someone in power, a senator, a congressman, a governor, they would immediately, you know, go to that politician and in the most friendly way possible, you know, just let him know that they had this information just so that to do him a favor, know it's out there. And of course, make him worried to know that the next time the FBI's budget was up for a vote, anything touching on the FBI came up that he, he needed to stay in their good graces. So when they weren't digging up dirt on senators and congressmen to, to lean on them, what was the FBI doing in the 1950s? What, I mean, what, was their official, what were they officially doing? Were they still looking for subversives? And I mean, obviously, with the onset of the Cold War, the hunt for communists became even even more intense. Yeah. So the FBI's power and questions of jurisdiction are, are change and, and they grow. So basically, the, the FBI is born pretty late. It's um, 1908. And it's designed initially to be a small permanent detective force within the Justice Department. Congress is worried. They don't want the president to have a secret police force. They want the FBI to be small. And it's referred to at the time as a bureaucratic bastard because there are other federal agencies involved in investigating crimes. So, for example, the Secret Service, which is part of the Treasury Department, was in charge of anything to do with counterfeiting currency. The Postal Service has their own investigative arm. And the FBI is sort of a a hodgepodge. It, It gets what's left over. And in the beginning, overwhelmingly, as now, you know, most crimes are state crimes. They're left to local police forces. And what's left to the FBI is odds and ends. I, I'll give a, a list. So when, when Hoover joins the FBI, the Bureau just has a few hundred agents, and they work on antitrust violations, escapes by federal prisoners, uh, crimes committed on Indian reservations. This is what the, the new Scorsese film is about based on the David Grand book, Killers of the Flower Moon, you know, when there were murders of Native Americans who you know, had oil money. That wasn't a crime the FBI would look into. And very important for Hoover, the new federal crime of interstate car theft. And I think in some ways this is Hoover's favorite because what Hoover really cares about are statistics. He wants to be able to say that the Bureau solves more cases than anybody and recovers, you know, really valuable stolen property. He always makes this claim year after year to Congress that the FBI is good value for money. However much money it costs to keep the FBI running, they return so much more in value to the taxpayer. And that's because of car theft. Cars are big. They're hard to hide. And as crimes, they're easier to solve. They're less, they tend to be less complicated than other crimes. Very often they're solved by local police, but the FBI takes the credit because if someone drives over a state, a state border, it becomes a federal crime. And they're involved in cases of, of white slavery, of, you know, it, it's a crime to take a woman who's not your wife 
over state lines for the purpose of having sexual intercourse. And back to our questions about blackmail, that's a very good way to get information on people. And you know, a number of celebrities get caught up in, in white slavery cases. So that's the FBI. So he's very keen on finding stolen cars because you can take them off as, as crime solved. But the kind of other things that you'd expect the FBI to be doing, going after organized crime, going after the mafia, and, and Hoover didn't seem to have any interest in that. Yeah, I find this fascinating. So one theory is that Hoover realized that mafia cases were really complicated. And, you know, as you say, you know, he he liked showing clean statistics. Spending years without much to show for it probably didn't appeal to Hoover. Another theory is that Hoover realized that mafia cases were really messy. Police officers were corrupted, they were blackmailed, they were bribed. And Hoover wanted the FBI to, to stay clean. And it's true, the FBI had a, a well-deserved reputation for not being corrupt. Another theory is that the mafia, or members of the mafia, may well have been blackmailing Hoover, that they had information or photographs of Hoover with Clyde Tolson, possibly, that would have been embarrassing for Hoover, would have made people realize that he was homosexual. Another theory is and again, hard to prove, but it's just one of those stories that has very wide circulation. So someone tweeted it, this at me when you know my piece went live, is that the mafia may have had photographs of Hoover cross-dressing. I mean, where did the, those stories come from? I'm not entirely sure. There was a reporter, Anthony Summers, who 30 years ago found a woman who I think did have some mob ties, who said that you know she saw Hoover dressed up in a feather boa in the plaza. And I think the suggestion was very strongly that the mafia was, was blackmailing Hoover. Hoover also, you know, he lived the high life. He would, you know, stay at luxury resorts and go to nightclubs and always expected his tab to be picked up. He made money um, within some weird investments that probably don't bear close scrutiny. People have theorized that he had mob ties, at least loose. But the, the truth is we, we don't know. After the Second World War the onset of the Cold War, as well as looking for communists, the FBI began investigating people they thought might be gay in the so-called Lavender Scare. Why did they do that? Yeah, so the theory behind that is, oh, we need to prevent people, in this, particularly in the State Department, from being able to be blackmailed for being gay by the Soviets. Which, of course, when you think about it, well, if it, if it wasn't a problem to be gay, then they wouldn't be susceptible to blackmail. But so many people lose their jobs. More people who work for the federal government lose their jobs because they're suspected of being homosexual than there were for being suspected of being communist. This is thousands of people. Um, many people commit suicide. My, I confess my, my, my grandparents worked for the State Department and, and they had a friend who killed himself because he was in the process of being outed. This was someone who, who worked for, for an embassy. And Hoover's running the show. He, in his librarian way, he figures out a way to help agencies, you know, share information during the Lavender Scare in a way that, that results in a lot of people being affected. Yeah, monstrous, really. I mean, the numbers of lives ruined by it is horrendous to think about, really. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unthinkable. Yeah. And there is, the again, the speculation about Hoover's own sexuality that he never married. He lived with his mother till he was 43. He had a long and close professional relationship with his deputy, Clyde Tolson. 
it has been suggested that Hoover was himself gay. Is that something we can know for certain? Well, Hoover never wrote a memoir or wrote a letter that we can read in the National Archives where he wrote about being gay. He definitely had this relationship with Tolson that at the time, I mean, people definitely saw it from the outside as, as being spousal. They didn't have the term domestic partner, but that's sure what it looked like. In social situations when, you know, if you had a party, so say a dinner party at which you were inviting couples, you would invite J. Edgar and Clyde. They were treated socially like a couple. Whether they actually had sex, we don't know. But there was definitely gossip at the time that they were gay by people who, who were sophisticated. I mean, I, I've actually, when writing this piece, I found myself asking elderly relatives, you know, did you think of J. Edgar Hoover as being gay? And um, and I was told by, you know, by these nice Americans, you know, people just didn't think that way. They didn't talk that way. It, it didn't quite occur to them that J. Edgar Hoover was anything more than just sort of married to his job. And He had this open relationship with another man and, and no one thought to question it. I don't know. I mean, if he, if he hadn't been J. Edgar Hoover and if he hadn't led this witch hunt forcibly and violently outing other people, I mean, you'd say good for him, wouldn't you? I mean, what to say? I mean, I think he was almost certainly gay, but I, I have sympathy for careful biographers uh, such as Beverly Gage, who, who are nervous about what they, they can and, and cannot prove. I mean, we know that, that the Kennedys referred to Hoover with, you know, with slurs that would suggest that they thought he was gay. Apparently, FDR's son Elliot said that his father was warned that Hoover might be gay and, and Roosevelt said he didn't care. Good for Roosevelt. But the, um, this question of, of JFK, you know, the Kennedy's relationship with Hoover, is another of the sort of open mysteries in your piece and in Hoover's story is that Kennedy's assassination in 1963, he, Hoover didn't seem that interested in it. Is that because, I mean, it seems bizarre. You'd think it would be, if the president's assassinated, the director of the FBI is going to be dedicating everything to, to solving the case. Yeah, I mean, I find this I find this fascinating, and also because you know the suspect number one, Lee Harvey Oswald, had referred to himself as a communist, had defected to the Soviet Union, had a Russian wife. I mean, you would think everything we know about Hoover and his obsession with going after commies would mean that Hoover would want every inch of Oswald's life investigated. Who were his friends in the party? What did he do in Russia? Who were his wife's friends? And instead. Hoover wants it wrapped up as quickly as possible. It's just that Oswald was a nut. There's nothing to see here. And, and there are different theories for why this was the case. One is that President Johnson was worried about World War III with the Soviet Union. Um, he doesn't want that much attention paid, it seems, to Oswald's Russian past. Another theory is that actually if the FBI had dug around a bit, it wouldn't have made the FBI look good. There are signs that Oswald really should have been on their radar and maybe even was on their radar, that the FBI had had dealings with Oswald and hadn't acted on them. So it's possible that Hoover, as usual, was just looking out for the reputation of the Bureau. But it is weird. And anyone who's, I think, remotely sympathetic to some conspiracy theories about the Kennedy assassination will find fodder for those theories in biographies of Hoover. And then the assassination of Martin Luther King five years later. 
again the fbi failed to prevent it they didn't do as much as they might have done solving it i mean you say in the piece that there was no one that hoover worked harder or more ingeniously to destroy than martin luther king so why was that i mean is that going back to the sort of the white supremacist kappa alpha is it hoover's antipathy to the civil rights movement where did that come from yeah so hoover's always interested in black leaders he's always suspicious and then there are a few things that king does that really upset hoover one is to win the nobel peace prize which he does in 1964 hoover really wanted to win a nobel prize i think he's envious another is that when king's first becoming famous he criticizes the fbi with good reason in the national press he wonders why the fbi hasn't done enough to find the killers of freedom writers these men who who went south to register black voters and were killed king says how come the fbi is able to solve these other high profile crimes but they haven't yet found the people who murdered these civil rights workers and king criticizes the fbi he says for for being too cozy with local police in the south which is true the fbi turned a blind eye to abuses of you know local police and law enforcement in large part because hoover had a sense not incorrect that the fbi cleared cases best when they worked really well with local police and you don't want to tick off the local police by arresting them for police brutality so hoover's not happy about that He's also not happy because King has close friends and associates who are lefties, some you know former members of the party, possibly current members of the party. Hoover through intermediaries says that he thinks King needs to disassociate himself and fire some members of his organization and Martin Luther King won't do it without proof. And that really bothers Hoover. Um he starts having wiretaps on King's phones, he taps hotel rooms, and according to to this memoir by William Sullivan what really bothers Hoover is King is on a wire after a meeting that King had had with Hoover at which Hoover thought he'd really charmed Martin Luther King and then he hears King say the old man talks too much on a wire and according to Sullivan that's it King has just signed his death warrant so what Hoover does is he has so much manpower on this. He wants to find anything that can embarrass King. I think he's hoping that King has maybe you know, embezzled money from his supporters, tax problems, and he's absolutely delighted when he finds they're able to get evidence on tape of King having sexual affairs with women who he's not married to. And that's when I, Hoover realizes that he, he can try to destroy King. It's this incredible moment. I mean, they the FBI sends the tapes to King's wife. This is right before King is supposed to go accept the Nobel Prize, and they said it's an I think it's an edited audio tape of just the worst bits from the recordings, and a letter that doesn't say it's from the FBI, but King and all associates they know it's the FBI, and it pretty much tells King that these are going to be released. They're going to hurt the civil rights movement. and the only thing king can do is to kill himself and it's it's so shocking and reading the letter now it's it's so painful it's so horrible and when did that become known that the fbi had done this to king there's a book that came out not long ago called the burglary 
the discovery of J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. And I, I think it's a great story. It's 1971. It's a night of a heavyweight boxing match with you know, Muhammad Ali. Everyone in the country is paying attention to that. Um, and there's a break-in at an F small FBI field office in Media, Pennsylvania. This is just outside Philadelphia. We've only found out in the last few years who was behind it. He was a physics professor at Haverford and his friends. And they break in to the FBI office. They get more than 1,000 documents. And they very thoughtfully, carefully, over a period of time, leak them to the press. And Americans learn for the first time just how extensive the FBI's surveillance systems had been on ordinary Americans, that the FBI is devoting huge resources to going after lefty college students, black newspaper editors, anyone who, you know, in Hoover's mind threatens the natural order of things. And I think that really is a turning point for Americans. Um, and one of the things that they find in the field office is the letter to Martin Luther King. And that happened in 1971. So that's the year before Hoover died. So Hoover was still alive. He's still director of the FBI when this stuff comes out. And that, because you begin your piece with talking about how in the 19, a poll was done in the 1950s, which an astonishingly high number of people approved of him and liked him. And as you say, he, by some counts, you could say he was the most admired man in America. But by the time he died in 1972, that was no longer true. Yeah, I mean, it's still the case that while Martin Luther King is alive, Hoover is much more popular than King. And it's just sort of slowly, slowly, slowly that, you know, that those two men switch places. So when Hoover died in 1972, he left his estate to, to Clyde Tolson. And Nixon was sorry to see him go? So There's just such great quotes from Nixon. But, um, you know, Nixon had actually tried to fire Hoover and he just couldn't do it. But when Watergate happens after Hoover dies and, you know, when Nixon's going through the process, trying to defend himself, realizing that he's going to have to resign, um, apparently he was telling everyone that, you know, if only Hoover had still been in charge of the FBI, um, he would have had a fighting chance. And the quote, I mean, Nixon told his White House counsel, he'd have scared them to death. He's got files on everybody, goddammit. Deborah Friedel, thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Tom. You can read Deborah's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with James Lasden on an alcoholic psychotherapy sex cult on the Upper West Side, and Florence Sutcliffe Braithwaite on how Britain prepared for nuclear war. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.